Welcome to the SPE Podcast, powered by the Society of Petroleum Engineers. You're listening to SPE Live, a new era of production optimization. The audio from this episode was previously recorded on November 13th, 2023. And now your moderator, Case Bacon. A hearty welcome to all our viewers. It's time for SPE Live again. The topic today, a new era of production optimization. My name is Kees Vaken. I used to work as a production engineer for Shell for 35 years. But the last few years, I've been active as an independent trainer and consultant on gas or performance. Uh, SP Live will last 30 minutes. And please uh, ask your questions throughout the events you know, by, by typing them in on the, uh, on the chat box. Um, before starting, I would like you to, to invite you to the SP workshop that we're organizing in end of January in Vienna, Austria, a beautiful location. There should be plenty of snow, so you can combine with, and it was a skiing holiday if you're interested. Um, but more important, it's, uh, you know, it will be a very exciting event where experts, operators, service companies, academia will share the latest developments, innovations, successes, but also failures related to late life production topics. Uh, not only in oil and gas assets, but we'll also address new energy applications, such, such as uh, CCS, geothermal, etc. cetera. Uh, so pl- yeah, please be, uh, you know, be heartily invited to that, uh, to that magnificent workshop. It's my pleasure to introduce our three guests, Anthony Ellison, Akos Kiss, and Wouter Botemans. I'll just do their uh, brief introductions. Anthony is a senior artificial lift advisor for Oxy. He provides in-house support, analyzing, optimizing, troubleshooting, sucker rods, pumps for Oxy's global operations. He's a recipient of the SPE Regional Production Operations Award has previously served as a chair of the SP Artificial Lift Conference exhibition in the Americas and was an SP Distinguished Lecturer um, in 2020-2021. He holds a bachelor degree in electronics engineering technology and a master's degree in petroleum engineering, both from Texas A&M University. Akos, Akos Kiss works as a production technologist for OMV in Austria, in Austria, Romania, Tunisia, and New Zealand, where he deals, amongst others, with stimulation, sand control, produced water management, artificial lift system design, and many other topics. Akos holds a petroleum engineering master's degree from the Mining University of Leoben in Austria. He's currently a board member of the SP Vienna Basin section and was a chairperson of that section from 2020 to 2022. As a recognition of his work, he was awarded in 2023 with the SPE Regional Young Professional Member Outstanding Service Award and with the SPE International The Way Ahead Energy Influencers Award. Last but not least, Wouter Botemans is a petroleum engineer with 27 years of experience in R&D, well services, reservoir engineering, production engineering and economics. Since 2012, Wouter has worked as a freelance petroleum engineer and has carried out various projects for international clients. His main passion is the integration of disciplines to optimize performance of oil and gas wells and also apply best practices in geothermal development projects. 
Besides from this, Wouter has served as the SPE chair in the Netherlands in 2012-2013. He holds a master's degree in petroleum engineering of the mining and petroleum engineering faculty at the Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. Anthony, Akos and Wouter, welcome to the SP Live. And I would now like to, to uh, illuminate us on, uh, on some topics. The first one is for Wouter. Uh, if you look back at uh, how you know, innovations and new technologies have permeated and impacted our business, can you, for one example, can you sort of comment on the historical promise that uh, smart wells uh, smart wells had and, and how that has materialized uh, it, it in present day, so what we, in terms of current applications. We'd love to hear you about that. Wouter, on to you. Okay, uh, thanks Gage for your very good introduction. Uh, hi everybody. Um, yeah, smart wells, I think that, that has been uh, the, the dream of, of production engineers and reservoir engineers worldwide. What are we talking about smart wells is sensors in wells, uh, real-time monitoring of what's going on in the well and have devices so that you can shut off or reopen certain inflow zones. And um, you can apply that to a single well or multilateral and uh, mainly it's applied in, uh, in, in, in horizontal wells or multilateral wells that are tied back, that have a subsea completion tied back to a main production facility. And the overall objective is recovery optimization. Uh, so you, you get a lot of data and, and you hope that you can, with pressure, temperature, and, and also flow rates, determine which zones do what kind of production. And, and that dream has, I think, matured pretty well. I think that has been a step change in the, you know, it started in, in the mid-1990s. And that has matured to a whole suite of, of tools and process, um, uh, software packages that, that can iterate between produce, measure, analyze, and intervene or, or do nothing can also be... Uh, happening so yeah what that, that promise in the past my perception is is that has been made pretty much true and and now you have a a suite of tools available to really optimize your 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 well design but still despite of all the tools that are available my perception is is that you always need to have the basics and the best practices and so, so there was a dream for many people to to develop more complex wells and reservoirs, and 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 make them recover, yeah, recover from from those complex uh, fields by by having a a continuous measurements. But you need always to have the basics and the best practices. And also, what to do with the data. How much computer power do you need? What kind of decisions do you make? So you always need to have a, a, a very good thought over development plan and the strategy. You really need to know your geology. So great dream in the past, achieve those tools and systems and, and software packages and, 
and, and great data processing. But you always need basics and the best practices. I think that the challenge is that in the future, um, yeah, like, like we're now and also ahead, if you look to the future, is that um, uh, can we even speed up that process of measuring, so monitoring, analyze, intervene, data storage, monitor again, analyze, intervene, so that optimization loop, and can we make it faster? And um, can we apply smart computers, smart algorithms on that? So, uh, and who's going to do that? So, I'm really a fan of those uh, smart wells. I like it. I think they're very good. I think the promise has been come true, and still, the only limitation is our own uh, fantasy in that respect, I think. Okay. Thanks a lot, Wouter, for uh, for your your your, your edu educational educating us on smart wells. The uh, the next next topic is artificial lift. So we have a question for Anthony. I guess when people think about artificial lift, a big a big decision to make is between gas lifting or pumping, as 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 far as oil wells are concerned. So can you sort of take us to how how that has changed, how the perspective has changed over time, as as experience, as innovations have kicked in, how how that split between gas lift and pumping has developed and sure so uh, a big shift we see in the artificial lift world and in both gas lift and pumping applications if those if that's esps or if it's rod pumps is trying to extend the operating range of these different lift methods uh, so if we look at gas lift um, which is becoming more and more uh, the predominant form of lift and the unconventionals in in north america with the amount of gas that that these wells produce, um, what can we do to extend the uh, lower range that we can operate with with gas lift before we have to shift to some other uh, lift method? Or can we extend that gas lift system uh, for the entire economic life of the well? Uh, what can we do with things like plunger assisted gas lift uh, to try and and keep that same system and the investment that comes along with it with uh, compressors and infrastructure to operate that, how can we make sure that we're maximizing the, the life of, of all of that equipment and, and the benefits we get from it for the wells? Um, on, the, on the flip side, we see with systems such as rod pumping is trying to extend their operating range uh, into higher and higher volumes. Uh, you know, and most instances, you know, rod pumping is one of the most economic forms of lifting if you look at it on a cost per barrel basis. And so can we move away from a more expensive, higher volume, you know, be that an ESP system or, or gas lift design and move to rod pumping earlier in the well's life? So you see uh, different advancements with the rod strings and trying to lighten that weight so we can, you know, dedicate more of the lifting uh, work that's being done to moving fluid as opposed to lifting a big heavy rod string, uh, larger and longer stroke pumping units uh, to try and, and maximize our, our volume per stroke. And then, you know, what discussions do we have earlier on, you know, and the, the planning and the drilling and the completion stage 
to make sure that these wells are you know, designed for those lift methods to succeed. Um, you know, the assumptions that go into a well that we expect to have on a rod pump down the road are very different than if you think it's only ever going to be on gas lift. And what we're uh, uh allow for in terms of dog leg severity and deviation and and things like that okay thanks a lot anthony i think you you yeah you point you highlighted a lot of critical elements of artificial if design and operation and I, I think certainly one of the topics that that will you know will take forward in vienna uh Next question is for Akos. Um, so we've been constructing, you know, probably several million oil and gas wells in the world, drilling a lot, poking a lot of holes. And I guess people are now thinking about alternative use of those holes. Can you can you sort of shine your light on that? What, what potential use there is in your view? Yeah, welcome everyone from my side as well, and thank you for the invitation. So let me touch base on on geothermal as a potential future use of existing oil and gas uh, wells. Uh, so as you mentioned, we have many wells which are about to be PNA'd and most likely the the further use of, of of you know producing oil and gas from these wells are not economical. So there is a quite a, a obvious use case of, of uh, you know, geothermal companies to, to have a look into these wells and then try to use them as, as geothermal wells. I mean, as, as well, if you think about geothermal companies, most of the cases are not the companies with uh, deep pockets, so they might have limitations on, on, on potential resources. I mean, these project really needs huge investments. So it makes sense. And then in some cases it could really use, so you could further use the well. Um, I mean, one obvious challenge is really well integrity, because if you think about those wells have been used for maybe 20, 30, 40 years plus, uh, so you might uh, have issues with, with uh, you know, the casing integrity, the cementing. So, you know, bigger projects really look into uh, drilling new wells, right? And of course, there are different uh, ways of using geothermal energy. I mean, in some cases, you would just use the well or the rock as a heat exchanger. But if you think about a classical um, injector and, and producer setup with some permeable rock in between, um, I mean, you can't really... Uh, the chance that you, something goes wrong is rather limited because most of the time you would find some formation water so it should work i mean there are only three things which you need to get right i mean one is is temperature one is one is rate and and the water chemistry right if you want to drill new valves and then uh, the trick is with um, with these new valves that you know you cannot really transport heat for long distances right it's it's a huge difference between oil and gas so the geo for the geothermal valves you really need to drill the valves close to the consumers and then usually it, it makes problems with if you need to, you know, drill uh, in the middle of the city or something. But uh, it should always work. If you get the temperature rate and water chemistry right, it should work. The only unknown is really uh, which for which use case, because you could use the valve only for heat. You could use, you know, uh, for heat and power. And maybe if you're lucky with high temperatures, you could also use it for power generation. So there's quite uh, some some challenges out there. But um, as you mentioned, um, geothermal industry is really sharing similar 
uh, difficulties and challenges as, as classical and gas. And the workshop is a great uh, opportunity to look into different use cases and different technologies. Okay. Thanks, Akos. That's, that's a very exciting prospect to, you know, to be able to reuse some of those fossil assets. Uh, Anthony, next one for you. Uh, I guess we're under, yeah, that, that, there's enormous uh, attention now for being responsible operators and, uh, and, and to really consider all the environmental uh, aspects of our business. Can you sort of uh, comment on how we're trying to do better in that respect and how we are doing better? Sure. So, yeah, every decision that we make in the operation of oil and gas wells has an environmental impact, has an emissions impact. Um, so we see a big push to trying to electrify more and more of the equipment that we're using in the field, as opposed to operating from uh, from uh, from gas systems that that have the emissions associated with them. So, you know, compressors that we might have run off of gas engines in the past, you see being moved to uh, electrified versions, uh, facilities and separator uh, installations where you had pneumatic valves that the valve actuators you know, would have run off of wellhead gas. We see those shifting to electric versions or, or instrument air. So, you know, these are, you know, so you've got on the one hand, very, you know, large installations, you know, compressors that may have a huge impact and then valves, which on an individual basis, you know, may not have a great deal of emissions associated with them, but there are thousands and thousands and thousands of these valves spread out across all of our installations. And so each one has a small impact that that needs to be uh, accounted for and, uh, and and handled in some way. You know, we see a big push on minimizing flaring as much as possible or eliminating flaring in entirely in, in some areas. And you know, that has operational impacts that you know, we need to start accounting for that, that maybe we haven't in the past. Um, so if I have a facility that's down and I'm not able to flare the gas associated with that during that downtime, then what do I do with the wells that are associated with it? Um, can we divert that production you know, somewhere else to some sort of uh, storage setup for liquids that's, you know, fairly manageable, but uh, more of a challenge on the on the gas side? Um, or do we just simply shut wells in and, you know, stop producing fluids to those facilities during these upsets, uh, which is, you know, easier from a, a flaring elimination perspective but then while these wells are down, you know, we're not treating them with chemical. Uh, we're not treating them with corrosion inhibitor. And what is that doing to our, you know, what, where I get concerned, especially in, in my day-to-day -day job is what is that doing to our lift equipment uh, that's downhole? And what are the potential impacts on equipment run life whenever we bring that back online? And are there more things that we can do to try and protect that uh, equipment whenever we, we have these sorts of upsets? Uh, Agos had mentioned earlier, uh, you know, wells that are drilled in closer proximity to uh, populated areas. And it's, you know, that's something that comes into play whenever we are designing our, our lift systems. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing if you're in, you know, a lot of 
towns in, in West Texas were, were used to seeing great big pumping units, uh, you know, right outside the window and in a lot of those fields, because that's what we all grew up with. And that's what has been there for 30, 40 plus years, um, you know, and newer developments and newer areas, that sort of surface infrastructure uh, may not be as accepted by the community that we're that we're working with. And so then we start looking at other lift methods that have you know, less of a, a surface impact on the surrounding areas. Uh, you know, ESPs, that's that's certainly easier, a much smaller surface footprint. Um, things like gas lift, you know, the wellhead itself, there's not a lot there that's taking up space uh, that has an impact on the surrounding community. But the compressors, you know, especially as we have in areas that we have more centralized gas lift, you know, they're very large, very loud installations. Uh, and so we have to be mindful of, of that as well as we're, you know, considering the uh, an entire uh, life cycle of the well and everything that has an impact on the community that we you know, we all live and share and work in uh, along with everyone else. So we want to make sure that we're the best stewards of that that we can be. Yeah. Thanks, Anthony. Indeed, it's become a, you know, more and more important aspect of our jobs. I think we're doing, you know, we're doing our best, but there's, there's, there's still a long road ahead of us. Um, oh, yeah, we do want to encourage uh, all, all our viewers and listeners to submit their questions. You know, we'd love to hear your uh, your uh, your challenge your challenges to put in front of us. Um, of course, the, um, another big ticket item nowadays is digitalization. You know, it's sweeping across the world, across uh, our, our lives, you know, from top to toe, as you could say. Can you comment on the on the future role of uh, digitalization in production management? Yeah, in my point of view, you know, digitalization and, and automated processes are really the, the, the future for, for all of us because then they really have the potential to increase production, reduce deferments, reduce downtime, and also to, you know, detect events and then try to act really actively and not uh, retroactively. So I think they are really the future enables. The only thing I would always keep in mind is that all these measures, you know, need to come and need to be introduced at the right time and the right scale, because they all come at the initial with some initial investments, and then later you can you can uh, you know benefit uh, from them. So, for example, we we are running some. Uh, really old brown fields here um, in, in our region with, with, which are you know, barely economical. So for example, we have many hundreds and thousands of wells with uh, um, only having manual gauges on, on the well side, right? And then, uh, so there are no transmitters. And then, for example, we had now a, a use case when, you know, we thought about let's just uh, install transmitters but you know for this amount it was not economical at all and then what what uh, you know always happened is that there were operators going to the well side they would uh, read the cages would make notes on on some uh, hard copy uh, notebooks and then they would put this into some tables and then send it to the supervisor he would upload it into the computer so what basically what we did is um, we just developed some advanced image processing uh, as a technology, because it was as mentioned, it was clear that transmitter is too expensive. Having an ATEC certified um, 
uh, tablet was also basically deemed to be too expensive. So what happened is uh, now they can just use and utilize any handheld devices with a camera and then using some advanced uh, image processing, um, uh, the, the software actually would uh, recognize the gauge readings and then put Put the make the input directly to to PIMS via this handheld device. So basically, we really reduce the amount of work for the operator. So, for example, for me, this is also a use case of 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 uh, digitalization automation uh, at at a, at a small scale, right? So, as mentioned, I think they are great. This is really certainly mean the the future of our industry, but it just needs to come at the right time at the right scale. Okay, thanks, Akos. Indeed, it is. It's yeah. It's going to permeate everything we're doing, I guess, in all kinds of shapes and forms. Looking forward to that. Uh, I guess final question for Wouter. Uh, you know, as as we're sort of going from you know fossil into new energy. Uh, I guess I guess we're now observing we're still using wells. You know, there's still lots of useful wells and for well well associated technology. Can you sort of comment on how? How you see that going in terms of technology, skills, um, you know, uh, uh, service providers? Yeah, I, I, I really like that uh, geothermal developments. I can mainly speak from the Netherlands. I've done some geothermal uh, yeah, project investigation in Turkey and in, uh, in the south of uh, Germany. But uh, I mainly can speak from from the Dutch perspective. Yeah, that that's a great technique. Huh? We we know about uh, the planning process for a well to be drilled, or uh, the, the 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 drilling process of the well design, the whole thinking around it. That's all work that the oil and gas has been doing since since decades. And um, I think there's a good vice versa interaction between what we can learn from the geothermal industry and what geothermal can learn from us. And the, the main challenge already was mentioned uh, for, the, yeah, for the geothermal is the, is the money. It's, um, in, in the, most of the projects are subsidized heavily. That means that they really have to look at the penny. And that means that they have to do things the first time right. Now, that that requires expertise but you have to pay for that and in that initial design not always the right expertise is hired and you, you see some opportunistic companies that that think hey that's a new business they dive into that yeah they try to make some money there and then the, they're really on the penny so sometimes my impression is that it's a little bit pennywise pound foolish work but in Netherlands, that really significantly improved. Uh, in, in 2017, the, the Dutch supervision uh, of the mines, they made a kind of alarm letter. And in 2021, they made a new overview of what is the status of that industry here. And, and it's much better. A lot of improvement with respect to rules and regulations, uh, like, like Anthony mentioned, the environmental aspects, but also the, the professional aspects to get things done the first time right. And um, yeah, I, I, I think that is where the, where the challenge will be in the, in the future as well. Uh, experienced people learn from the oil and gas, how they do the things, it's all the same, but the other way around as well. I have to emphasize it significantly. I learned myself 
that because you have to be the first time right, you think things over twice before you do an asset job, you might consider how much asset do I actually need? I had a very nice example where an operator was recommended to use uh, 50 cubes of, of, of HC, 15% HCL. So this operator thought, oh, that's a lot of money. Why 50 cubes? Why not 60 or why not 40? So we, we dive into it more di deeply and we came up with 20 cubes. Ah, that did the job. Cost them uh, less than half of uh, the recipe they earlier uh, were recommended. So I, I like those things. Do the things first and right means more effort in your initial design. And uh, there we can assist, but yeah, we know also from ourselves that it's not always uh, heaven in oil and gas, not all things go right. But uh, I'm really happy that I sometimes can uh, support geothermal projects. And that is, uh, yeah, I think we can learn from each other. Yeah. Yeah, clearly the, the days of wells are not, uh, are, are not over by far. Uh, it's good to see how you know how it's how it's sort of merging or migrating into the into the new era with for new energy needs. I think we're uh, you know time is up. We didn't have any any questions from our audience, but I, I do hope uh, everybody enjoyed the uh, the interaction, the questions, and the information on the table. I think we'd like to close off with inviting you again to the SP workshop in Vienna. Uh, end of January in the new year. Yeah, a lot of a lot of late life topics uh, being addressed, um, mainly oil and gas, but also also highlighting uh, you know, the, how 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 we slowly move into the into the new new er energy era. Um, so I'd like to thank everybody for uh, for joining us, and certainly our. Uh, our key guests, Anthony, Akos, and Wouter, for their uh, for their inputs. And on that note, uh, let me wish you a very good rest of the day, week, until the year ends. Merry Christmas is a bit bit too far ahead, I think. But you know, all 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 best wishes apply. And I hope you uh, you join again for a next SP Live and the next workshop. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the SPE Live podcast. For more content, visit the SPE Energy Stream, the industry's digital pulse at streaming.spe.org. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe and review. Join us next time on the SPE Live podcast.